Excellency. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade. Early this morning, the Allies began the assault on the northwestern coast of Hitler's European Forces. Bonjour, my name is Clément Orvat, a young Frenchman, history buff and author of Till Victory, the Second World War, by those who were there. In this fourth episode of Till Victory, a podcast about World War II and peace, I'm having a conversation with British tank gunner Cecil Newton, veteran of the 4th, 7th Dragon Guards from Aldbourne, Wiltshire. Unlike my previous American guests, Tom Rice and Sam Carlyle, who only appear in a tome 2 of Teal Victory, for now only available in France, Cecile's story is told in the first tome published by Penanswood Books in October 2020. On June 6, 1944, he landed with the first wave on Gold Beach in one of those special Sherman DD tanks and destroyed a German blockhouse. We'll talk about D-Day, of course, but also about the day he was seriously wounded in Germany. As a matter of fact, it's incredible that he's still around to talk about it today. Cecil will talk about psychological trauma and remembering the sacrifice of his brothers in arms and of his brother, who was shot by SS soldiers pretending to surrender only a month before the end of the war. Three quarters of a century later... Cecile was stuck at home because of the lockdown and this coronavirus crisis and therefore wasn't able to travel to Normandy like he usually does. So I gave him a call and I'm sorry in advance for the sound quality of the phone call but there's unfortunately not much I can do about that. However, this was a very emotional and important conversation so please give that great man all the attention he deserves. Hello. Hello, Cecil. It's Clement. Clement, yes. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. You know, I'm, I'm um, uh, in the house and uh, confined here as a, as a vulnerable person. That's, I'm over 96 now. They're looking after me. Well, I'm sure you've seen worse times than this. Do you remember when World War II was declared? Yes, uh, I was very young at that age, compared with present-day people. Mm -hmm. I mean, a 60-, 20-year-old, and it was was about a 16-year-old at the moment. And um, I do remember Chamberlain, who was then the Prime Minister, waving a piece of paper in his hand, and uh, saying peace at our time, that would have been on a cinema newsreel. We hadn't got any television then. Yes, I remember it, but it didn't worry me very much. Why did you join the army? My brother was a cadet at school. He was very keen. And um, the next-door neighbors were in the tanks. Uh, the dear brothers, and um, I just went along with that and joined the army. Uh, I hadn't got any um, preconceived ideas about what was happening. I wasn't thinking too much about it, to be quite frank. Everybody else was going in, and I was called up. No, I wasn't called up, I volunteered, but uh, that's how it worked out. 
On D-Day, the tank regiment you joined was using special Sherman DD tanks, the duplex drive that could float on the water. Can you tell us about your training? These DD tanks, uh, there was a, a, an exercise at Stuttgart Bay, and uh, six of the tanks sank, the duplex drive tanks sank. They realized that they, it was a rough day and that they um, couldn't cope with uh, rough weather. Mm. Uh, but fortunately for me, the Valentine uh, was used then for a duplex drive, and uh, it has a four man crew, and I was uh, uh, you know, set up for a Sherman. Which had a five man crew. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, I wasn't in the exercise, but the rest of the four of the tanks were rescued and they came back in naval uniform, you know, quite close. The polar next things that well bottom. And they never spoke about it. They were so shocked that they. Uh, But the training was, uh, you know, gunnery training and uh, all that business. But uh, the DD, well, they learned the lesson of the DD tanks that um, you couldn't launch in rough weather. And uh, very fortunately, we had a very good captain, Richards, uh, in the uh, in the uh, army. And he was the liaison officer for the uh, uh, the Navy. And when he came to D-Day, of course, the Navy had complete control. Uh, but um, he was on board the ship. And he, uh, yes, you know, the, the D-D tanks waded in. Otherwise, it had been an absolute disaster. Mm. What was going through your mind before the invasion? Were you scared? Uh, before the invasion, I was um, just uh, wondering what was going to happen and uh, no strong thoughts about it at all. Uh, I didn't anticipate what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, but what it, when, when we did land, of course, the um, blockhouse came under fire from HMS Belfast and Iran, I think, lying off, and uh, eventually they surrendered. Uh, but uh, I can't remember any emphatic or definite thoughts about it. Just get on with it and do it. You see, the, um, the, the blockhouse was firing on down the beach, both sides couldn't find so he couldn't really do anything about uh, firing at us. But if we hadn't sunk as we did or got bogged down in that shell hole by the blockhouse, we were on the right. And if it had, the gun was pointing towards us down the beach. And if we had gone very much further, it would have got us. But... We went down that show hole, and uh, we, uh, I suppose, Belfast had uh, made, and 
saved from having a direct hit from the blockhouse because we were very near it. But they couldn't get us because they couldn't carry us the gun round to get us. The crew came out and uh, the captain in the middle, the half a dozen of them, his white shirt and his German his hat, uh, cap on and... Uh, they sent in some the infantry left them took, took them away and left us to it. We, that was about midday by then. But they said we I went and got a bicycle from a heap mm-hmm. and had a ride down the beach, the gold beach. <laughs> so I got some got some holiday out of it. <laughs> <laughs> And after D-Day, you, you had to fight in Norman Hedgerows, the Bocage, um, which you were not properly trained for. Is that right? Well, the, um, after that, of course, uh, we went into action until I was wounded in November. But um, we had no training for, uh, you know, for going to a place that looked like the replica of Normandy. Mm. No, uh, I can't remember that um, at all. We went to, uh, before the, you know, before we went to, we had gunnery practice at ranges, but uh, I can't remember very much about it, actually. It wasn't a battle in Normandy that we won. They were all a disaster for the regiment, Tesla especially, Yorks. And but we weren't involved in it, but Villers Bocage was uh, it parked in the village high street and uh, going from west to east and the tank ace and two other tiger tanks came up from the south and uh, I can't remember the, 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 the German tank case now, but he went down the line just destroying the tanks, shooting at people. And uh, the second-in-command, understood, took a, climbed a tree at the east end of the village and uh, stayed up there until the next morning to come down. Saved his own life, of course, but uh, they had people in command of They're all county regiments. I mean, it was the fourth county of London, Yeomanry, who were at the village Bacars, commanded by the Honourable somebody or other, I can't remember now. Uh, they'd been sort of social groups before the war, and then during the, when the war came, of course, they were not trained. It was the same as the our regiment, the Fourth Ocean Guard. They were a equestrian club with uh, troops enjoying sports facilities. And then in 1938, they were converted to tanks. They had no tank experience. But the Germans were skilled, trained troops. They were soldiers. They were civilians. It was civilians versus the... Uh, well-trained army. You actually were wounded in Tripswrath, Germany. Can you tell us about that day? Yes. Again, was, um, we'd been reduced to two tanks 
And we were in a farm. We arrived at a farm that just the two tanks. And uh, we uh, had to, um, we stayed, we dug a trench in front of the farmhouse. And uh, the driver, uh, Cliff Ford, who was exceptionally good person, I always had great confidence in him. And he uh, uh, put, went and got a door out of the farmhouse and put it over everything. And, and we start, started off first thing in the morning. Uh, down into the village, turn left and turn right into the high street and uh, went down the high street and the commander said bail out of our tank and uh, he was a, an old man, he was elderly-ish mm. and uh, he fiddled around while I... Uh, uh, Waited underneath the gun. That was the only way to get out of a Sherman was for the operator to get uh, to wait his turn while two others got out, and uh, he got out all right. Then the gunner got all right, all right, because on the right, I got out. And when I was pushing my getting out the turret with my left leg dangling, mm-hmm. that the, the tank blew up. Caught fire. They caught fire very, very easily. <laughs> the show was completely ridiculous, really. It had very soft uh, steel, mm-hmm. and uh, I remember a, a German Spandau bullet stuck in the metal of the armor. It was that soft, and put the belly on the back. Um, which, of course, the Germans went for. It appeared that it was a young German, blonde German, with uh, potato mashers, they called them, a grenade. I thought it was a tank that hit us at first, but it wasn't. And I got out with my left leg dangling, and uh, uh, the glass of the tank shattered that left leg, and I stood on the top of the tank, Wondering how I was going to get down and part. I didn't see them, but passing infantry must have come past and they shot me in the uh, upper chest and it knocked me off the tank and I landed in the mud by the track of the tank. By that time, it was burning red hot, the tank, the Sherman mm-hmm. called, you know, Tommy Cookers or. We used to call them Ronson Lighters. And um, I was wondering what to do when, again, this Cliff Ford rushed out of the house. It was absolutely incredible that young 20-year-old like him, you know, how they behaved, it was impeccable. As soon as he saw I was in trouble, he reacted immediately to try and rescue me. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary, really. But they, uh, they lobbed a couple of grenades over the tank and got him in the legs and the co-driver was behind him and uh, missed me, of course. And I called into the house and Buster Brown was waiting for me and uh, he got me on the bed, went out of the back door to get some morphine from the infantry officer, which he did. Mm-hmm. Gave me and uh, I uh, 
Also lost a very dear person in the war, your, your brother, only a month before the end of it. My brother, who was killed, as you know, um, didn't he got out of the tank to out of his armored car. He'd only been in the armored car for transfer and 
for four days. He got out to take the uh, two who were surrendering in, not realizing that they were in the nearby cops. There were four or five Romanian survivors of the debris just slaughtered and uh, killed him. But they must have killed some of the, those two prisoners who were coming in. They must have been killed as well. It's so sad, really. It was sad. Do you feel resentment towards the Germans? There was some who were, you know, created misdemeanors. Um, but I would want to carry any resentment out further. It was a war that we shouldn't have entered in the first place. It was too easy. Churchill should have made every endeavor to uh, facilitate a deal of some sort. But eventually, of course, it escalated into a quarter million dead. I wonder if he realized what he was doing. I very much doubt it. But I think he also made every endeavor to make sure that that war, you know, didn't, that it didn't develop into a war. We, we actually declared war on Germany. They didn't declare war on us. We didn't get a reply within a year from what they'd uh, requested. So they said, uh, we must presume we're at war. And they just dropped into it. There was more behind it than there will ever be developed, I'm afraid. You'll never find out Let's talk a bit about Brexit, because when we first met, you told me you were fighting at the time for what you used to call the, the United States of Europe. And when I visited you at your house last summer, there, there was a European Union flag flying in your backyard. Yes. Uh, how do you feel now that the UK has left the Union? I've always had a great admiration for France. It became a secular republic. Uh, they... Uh, They don't have a monarchy. Uh, they uh, they don't in the church. The churches in Normandy, and I suppose it's throughout the country, were had um, the mayor looked after them. There was no vicar. If we wanted a vicar, you have to come from a, a seminary. I thought that was you know to keep religion out of you know let people make up their own minds and not to let it influence the general population. In this country, of course, there are... I mean, there had been that dreadful, dreadful problem in Ireland. The IRA were people killing each other for their religion. And then in Scotland, you know, they're, they're all Protestants, so it didn't occur there. But it plays such an important part But the best thing to do is to not have it in the entry into politics or anything like that, keep it out. But uh, it did happen. And uh, as far as the uh, United States of Europe is concerned, Surrey must have gone significantly wrong, mostly in uh, the 
that it hadn't been properly thought out in the first place and that there were disputes over fishing and things like that. She came across, I was very sad. I wanted to have a united uh, Europe uh, that worked. It was impossible to get, presumably. And they, uh, the cake got out. I was hoping that we'd follow the United States of Europe and become a secular republic and uh, join up with France, Germany again and all the other European countries and become a successful uh, trading group. But that never happened, did it? Those in the UK who didn't want to be joined up with France. Um, but I think it would have done us the power of good if we had joined up with France. It's a lovely country. Do you think that the Union is important in maintaining peace? I certainly did. Yeah. I wanted it to be a successful group of countries that lived harmoniously and in the, you know, the trading business and uh, would become you know, the bigger the countries or the bigger the area like America the more successful it gets. So now you have a school in Crowley, Normandy, bearing your name. How does it make you feel? school bearing my name is a very grateful thank you, but the French have always been like that. They've yeah. been generally thankful that they were liberated. Yes, we are. Uh, from the invasion of Egypt at that time. And the sacrifice that was made by those young people. You lost 124 members of your regiment. What is it like to listen to young school children reading their names, like last summer when I was with you in Normandy? And what would you like to tell these kids? Difficult to say, but I, to, to uh, the, uh, the school children, I'd say. Uh, Your life is very precious. You don't lose it. Yeah. Uh, I uh, hope that there won't be such a uh, situation arising in the future where young 20-year-olds uh, have got to sacrifice their lives for in any way. Uh, I think of my brother. He was... He was uh, had a girlfriend from Scarborough. They would obviously get married and have a family, build a house like I did, have a successful career like I've had, and uh, enjoy all the, the pleasures of the countryside. But no, he was 22, it was taken away from him. And we will never forget his sacrifice and your comrades' sacrifices, and we are eternally grateful for what you did. My comrades sacrificed themselves, and they were 20 years old. I remember them individually, and thankfully to have such nice people uh, with me. 
and uh, I can never forget it. Um, uh, I have um, just recently had a plaque put in the garden with the uh, bearing the names of the two powers in it, they launched ever uh, inscribed on it, and with the names of the um, 80, the whole night infantry, who were killed on that day, the 14th of June. And it's, I can see it from here now, with the flag, French flag flying, the poppies uh, below it, one of which was made by one of the school children, I think from Coyne. And uh, it's a permanent reminder to me of the uh, sacrifices mm. that were made, <clears throat> not only by our tradition, but by the, uh, the other regiments, like the DLI, who uh, I saw being killed at uh, their... Do you think we, we do enough to remember them? I think it's up to the individuals um, to uh, remember, which they do in this village, of course, um, in a small community to remember. I think in, in, if people want to remember further, then they should. Uh, I don't know what they can do, really. I think a large group of people uh, it's very good to write the November remembrance, but if you didn't know the person personally, it's quite difficult, really, to uh, uh, continue the remembrance. But I think enough's done. We've got the British Legion over here, and they uh, do very good remembrance services, etc. Um, so I don't see very much can be done to to remember unless individuals want to remember it with uh, with memorials. But uh, as I do, but uh, you know, it's uh, I think it's going along okay at the moment, making sure that you don't slip into a terrible conflagration uh, like we had. In that uh, World War Two. Well, thank you very much for your time, Cecil, and I will never say it enough. Thank you for everything you've done, and for our freedom. Thank you. I'm sorry about my deafness, but uh, it's one of the many ailments that I have. But uh, press on, regardless. My regards to you, and hope one day we'll meet again. Yes, me too. This year won't be possible because of that virus, but I'm looking forward to seeing you again. Yeah, I mean, I've been in this house all year. I haven't been allowed out, really, because of, uh, of my... Uh, if I went out uh, protecting the old folk over here, they were indeed. Yeah. They okay, no grumbles. Cheerio for now. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for your time. Goodbye. Well, that was very emotional. But there's another thing I wanted to add. 
I was lucky enough to visit Cecil last year in the UK with a French TV crew that was doing a report about my work. And, and Cecil showed me the, the piece of shrapnel that was taken out of his leg by the medic after a trip's wrath. And, and believe me, that piece was huge, about the size of probably half my fist. It's incredible that he survived it, in addition to his tank catching on fire and being shot in the back. After our interview, Cecil wrote me an email saying... I did not get around the remarkable good fortune I had to survive at Trip's Wrath. All night, the German multi-barreled mortar, the moaning mini-shells, were going over the farm and when we were leaving at first light, they eventually found the target and demolished the farm buildings. I feel honored to have been able to spend so much time with Cecil and, and it's such a good thing that he's still around and doing all this work to preserve the memory of his brothers in arms. Remember his words, life is precious. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. There are a lot of great episodes coming and you don't want to miss them. Make those stories known, share them around and hit the like button on whatever you're listening to them on. All the links for the book and social media are on tillvictory.com and I appreciate all your messages. Till next time, thank you for listening. Au revoir.